You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, so we're back here for another episode of the X-Men podcast. What a week, (laughs) y'all. What an absolute whale of a week. Um, I had a couple different ways I was going to approach this. I was supposed to, usually my show comes out either Tuesday or Wednesday. It's been Wednesdays lately and then i was gonna do it yesterday and then last night the new bad wolf single lifeline came out because it was supposed to come out the eighth but i guess the eighth means 12 a.m on the east coast which is 9 p.m out here so i kind of started celebrating i went i went live and uh essentially i don't know you know, I I don't always assume that just because someone listens to this show, they're clued into what's going on on the internet, on social media. You know, kind of following the the blow by blow. But essentially, the the band put out a statement a couple of days ago. Uh, you know, talking about some of <laughs> laying some things down about the credibility of the band and who writes what and kind of pushing back against some of the disparagement that's been going on from the band's former vocalists. And then we knew this would happen, but then he, he leaked uh, an older version of the song with his vocal track on it and then told his followers that uh, we stole the song from him and, we don't write anything and he writes everything. And, uh, and so, you know, we had, and, and that created this, uh, you know, one thing he's great at is creating a narrative. Uh, and the narrative is, you know, again, he's, he's the victim. Everything's been done to him. And by the way, I'm you know, just, 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 just a caveat. I've, the last time I spoke about this situation on the show, uh, I got an email saying, Hey doc, you gotta chill out. Don't say this. Don't say that. And I'm I'm kind of past that at this point. Um, in the last week to ten days, things have been said that are so extreme, so flagrant, so beyond the pale that I actually don't uh, they don't warrant even me addressing because it, it, the 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 level of the lies. Uh, this person is the most egregious 
serial liar I have ever witnessed. It's actually, um, it's scary because it's so, there's so many lies and it's so easy and so believable that I wonder if he believes it when he's saying it. It's the ease of it that's so scary and which is, and he's so good at it, which is why I think people tend to believe it. And like the best liars, there's always a kernel of truth. He'll take the, the kernel of something true and then change all the details <laughs> or like reverse the story. A lot of projection, you know, accusing people of, of doing things that he's done. Um, and I don't like conflict. I don't like feuds. I said this, you know, a, a few weeks back because fighting, right? And especially when it reaches the physical level is inherently illogical to me because I hit you, you hit me. And that cycle essentially never ends until someone's down, hurt, dead, what have you. Um, it's a never ending cycle and it's, and it's exhausting. I'm, I'm someone who seeks peace. I was always that kid when my parents would argue, I would want, I'd be the mediator. I'm a Libra, I think, I think it has something to do with it. But I, when I see conflict, I wanna resolve it. I wanna, hey, if someone has a problem with me, I wanna call, call you up, hey man, what's the problem? I heard you were, you were upset. How can, I, how can I help make that better? I don't like um, dealing with that. And I've had situations in the past, leaving bands where I could have said, Oh, you know, every bad thing that person ever did or, you know, I don't get along with my brother. You know, he was on this show when we, we were trying to hash it out. Me and him, we don't really speak. But I'm not going to go in here and tell you every terrible thing he did. And that's what's being done to us. But it's so it's every day. I mean, if you guys aren't paying attention, this guy goes on his his Instagram live for hours every day. <laughs> it's it's pathological um, because his goal, his worst nightmare is that bad will, bad wolves will be successful without him because the narrative is he did everything. We're all dead weight. And, uh, and with the song coming out, the album coming out October 29th, that fear could come to fruition. So what does he do? He leaks the song. And he, I mean, this is like diabolical stuff. I mean, he's, he used a intermediary, like uh, some social media marketing company, <clears throat> allegedly, he allegedly used this stuff and then sent emails to some international website where you can download the song and, and stream it. And then, <laughs> and then claimed we leaked it. Why the fuck would we leak? our own of a, a, a different version of our own song the days before our version comes out Why would, i mean that's assuming you you like tommy and you he's your favorite person that's going to cut into our single sales it's going to cut into our streams why would we cannibalize our own uh impact it, it, it was completely um it was completely uh hurt you know, our ability to, you know, just be able to get that first bite of the apple and say, present ourselves. It was, it, it was tainted. And listen, I don't, I don't want to say, um, 
you know, like there's been so much great feedback and the people who are open-minded, the people who want to support the band have loved the song and it's beautiful, you know, but I, I think, unfortunately, it's just the way the, the human mind works is that you could have a hundred people in a crowd loving you and that one person that's giving you the finger, you tend to ignore all that stuff and just focus on that, on that one person. And it's, I mean, because of this, and like I said, this targeted harassment, and that's what it is, uh, this abuse of um, social media that is that is against the terms. Um, you know, I, I'll just, I, I, you know, I, I delete people, I block them, but I'll just give you just, just what it's like to be me for a day. <laughs> Let's find some. What's, what, what's one? Uh, the Bad Wolves version of Lifeline is like ordering from Wish.com and getting a shitty quality imitation of what you wanted. That's that's nice. These people don't even follow me. Uh, bitch Wolves. <laughs> that's actually pretty funny. I responded, uh, bitch blocked. <laughs> um, you know, what's, you know, there's, there, there, there's, there's so many, um, but the point is, so I'm, I'm talking about 50, here's, here's, here's one the things that bother me. You, you guys stole this and then you block everyone that comments if they disagree with you, pathetic. Um, sweet, a Tommy Vex cover band. You guys play keggers in high school. Uh, oh, damn, sounds like shit Tommy Vex did, Vex did it better. Now, and I'm talking about, you know, 40, 50 comments and the way our brains work is that we still, if you say something like that to me, it still feels almost as like, it's like you're saying it to me in person. So you go into this like fight or flight mode, right? You gotta decide, do you go after the person? Do you respond? Do you ignore everything, right? I mean, you can you can do all that. And I'm a pretty um, even killed person. I know how to like, just kind of push, push stuff to the, to the side. But it has an effect, you know, and I went through the gamut of emotions, you know, and this was very similar to when it was first announced that Tommy would be out of the band where all he galvanized people. He said he lied and said he's out of the band because of politics. And so he 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 takes, you know, some crusade and makes them part of it and then tells them to come fuck with us, you know, and the thing about it, that's the definition of cancel culture. It's, hey, such and such fucked up. Go over there and and yell at them and tell them they suck. And then you that's, he's, every day, he's trying to cancel us. You know, Mr. Anti-Cancel Culture. He loves cancel culture. Loves it. Only when he's canceling you. You know? And his, his fans don't even, they don't even get that. They don't even realize they put on mission. But let's let's actually let's talk about the crux of the the narrative that things were stolen from him. Okay, let's talk about this song Lifeline just to begin with. Okay. The only thing he wrote on the song were lyrics in the verse. He didn't write the melody, didn't write the chorus, vocals, or melody. That's it. And you know what we did? We changed his lyrics. So nothing in the song is anything he written. He wrote. He does not play an instrument. So he didn't play any of the instrumentation. He didn't write in the instrumentation. So how does he own it? And people are like, oh, he's he owns the business. I'm like, well, he co-owns the business. But you guys don't understand how record contracts work. Most normal record contracts work 
is the label owns the master recording and they own the copyright. Okay. So by the fact that he actually sang on it makes it the label's property, intellectual property. Okay. And then when you leak that and then you seek to distribute it, you're committing a federal crime for copyright infringement against intellectual property. That's like leaking the Avengers movie before it comes out or the new Metallica album. You can go to jail. It's a federal crime. Okay. And he believes he owns it just because he sang on it. How does that work? And I, I made this analogy on on uh, on the internet, but I'll I'll make it I'll make it on here. Eric Stoltz, the actor, was in played Marty McFly in Back to the Future, um, and they he got he was in the movie. They shot for six weeks, and they realized he's not the guy, and they fired him, and they got Michael J. Fox. So just because I have footage <laughs> of Eric Stoltz in Back to the Future means. He owns Back to the Future or he wrote it or he directed it. Do you see how dumb this logic is? Um, but these people, you know, I said, the, 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 you know, I'm sorry, these aren't the brightest people. I don't like to denigrate people, but it, it does take a certain amount of critical thinking to be able to listen to someone and go, that doesn't make sense. Um, so he is actually committing the theft, intellectual property theft by distributing material he doesn't own. He's basically his own little Napster. Um, but they think we're the thieves. And, and the reason why that is, is such a point to make is that I can take a lot of things. You can call me an asshole. You can say I'm dumb. I'm weak. I'm whatever. I don't give a fuck. But when you lie about my credibility as a musician and someone who works in this business and has put his time in and someone who conducts, who, who does everything in his power to conduct myself with integrity that's when it bothers me. And when it's a lot of people, and I know it's going to keep happening. I'm going to have to go home. I have to block people. I'll do this. And listen, I could, you know, just get off social media and just live my life. But, you know, we have an album coming out. I want to promote it. I want to be a, be a part of it. So I have to wade through the muck, so to speak. Um, and the point of this is not, like, I do not want to be involved in a mudslinging competition. I would prefer not to speak about these things. Um, like I said, I'm a man of peace. I, I, I want to resolve things, but unfortunately, and this only living through this experience, could I, could I realize that someone could punch you a thousand times. And if you punch them back once people go, look, these two sides, they just can't get along. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really amazing. And, and what I've learned also is that these tools the social media, when you have a big mi microphone, you can do so much dam damage and, and if you're not responsible with it. And there's really not a lot of mechanisms to hold people accountable for this type of abuse. And it is abuse and it is harassment. Um, and trust me, we've looked into things and it's near impossible. And I don't get it because I know people have gotten kicked off of social media before, but this um, the things this, this person is saying is... Uh, I think there's an intent to inspire people to maybe harm us or to at least hate us, you know? And there's nothing worry about worse than that, you know? 
Um, and for me, yo, I did not get in the music business for this shit. I got into this to, cause I like music. I like playing with people. I like, it's like when you're on tour and you're on a good tour and it's going well. And you're like, every day you're at a cool place. You're at the place that everyone wants to be. They're smiling. That's what, and it's like, man, this is sick. When you're working on a record and you go into a room and you got nothing and you leave at the end of the day, you have something cool. That's amazing. This ain't cool. It's not, it's not cool at all. But luckily I'm strong here, strong here. All right. I can take it, but it's really important for me as someone who's been doing this show for five years to, it's not about to sit here and complain and go, hey, okay, I'm going to tell you who my, who my enemy is this week. And I'm going to blah, blah, run off, you know, uh, all that bullshit. It's a, just about being honest about how I feel, you know, because I, I've been angry. I've been sad. I've been like, you, if, I, if you saw me on the live yesterday, I was, I was in a great mood. You know, I've had every, all the gamut of, of, um, emotions. And now I'm just tired. And I just want to, you know, the business of being in a band should not be this people trying to take away your livelihood. You know, it's, it's not hard to fucking lift other people up. It's not that hard. All right. Um, but there are entities that are negative and malignant and tireless. That's what's so uh, impressive about it is the tirelessness and the, the relentlessness. Um, but, you know, you, you, know, you, you always got to see the, the, the forest through the trees and know that things, things will not last. And the, and the, and the, and the tragedy of it is this all should be like a triumph. You know, and because of that situation where the 99 people love it and the one person is being an asshole and I'm looking at, I'm focusing on the negative, that's also on me. That I got to really take in all the, that positive energy that people are giving me um, and, the, and the rest of the guys in the band because I really do appreciate it. It's amazing. I know people have been so patient uh, for new music and I hope you guys like it, you know. Um, so, you know what, we're going we're gonna, to... We're gonna play the first Bad Wolf song in almost around two years. This one's called Lifeline. Reaching out, give me a lifeline. I don't know if I can carry this on my own.
there you have it. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. I'm sure a lot of you have heard it. It's It's been out there, you know. It's on the radio. Serious Octane. Thank, thank you all then for, for hooking it up. And uh, yeah, I mean, so we chose that song because we felt it was like right in that middle ground where it's heavy, where it's got some, got some balls to it, but it's still, you know, it's still a hit. It's still got that radio potential as well. So I know some people are worried like, oh, is it, is the album heavy enough? And I'm like, I think it's, I think it's heavy enough. You know, we'll see. I, I kind of, I'm every album. I always want it to be a little heavier than everyone else. So maybe I'm, I'm probably more on the side with the, <laughs> with with the fans. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. I think it's just one of those songs that's just pretty infectious. But I'll say this about the record: every song is kind of a hit. There are it's a it's a it's a tough choice. It just like I said, we put we picked this one because we thought it would do well at radio. But we'll definitely between now the album comes out, be releasing songs as 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 it comes out but it's it's pretty it's pretty exciting i think i think people are gonna dig the record man it's it's a beast baby and and dl kills it i hope you guys like the way dl sounds um all righty what else oh we have a show sponsor this is always exciting i know it's coming a little later i went, I went long on on the intro i just get this stuff off my chest i don't i don't like to be mr monologue man all the time i i, I assume you guys get annoyed of hearing me so but Things, things had to be said. And I'm sure people will pick it up, you know, websites, Doc said this, and then I'll get another email from management. And I'll be like, yo, your boy got to express himself. I got to get this off my chest, y'all. All right. It's not that I'm like, you know, if you, sometimes you just got to, you got to express yourself and you got to get things off your chest. Even if it, it, even someone will take a quote and it'll look like I'm in a food fight which I don't want to be in. I don't. It just, you stop doing shit to us and stop saying shit about me and squash it, boom, move on. I mean, we'll see. All right. But sometimes there's certain things that just, just have to be said, unfortunately. All right. This is a band. They're called In The Whale. I believe they're from the UK. And this was actually, oh, bam, this was produced by Steve Evitz. Holy shit. This song is called Drug Dealer. Check it out.
Um, how good was that? That was like there was just so much different styles blended together. By the way, I screwed up. They're from Denver, Colorado. I'm sorry, they're not from the UK. I just saw that they will be touring in the UK uh, in late October with a band called Evil Scarecrow. And the EP that they did that's produced by by Steve Evitz to live tape like some real motherfuckers. Uh, it's called Vanishing Point, and it's going to come out October 22nd. That was that was great. That was damn. I'm I'm, I'm about to go back and 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 re-listen it. By the way, I I don't be lying when I be saying that when when people sponsor the show, the song is good. I'm I'm gonna feel it's like it's like when Johnny Carson, you know, if a comedian does good, he'll like bring you up to the to you know to come say hi. That's you know when I'm feeling it, I'm 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 really feeling it. But remember, so the band's in the whale. That's W H A L E like. Moby Dick Whale, and if you want to check them out, they have a website which is www.inthewhalesucks.com, which they don't. Facebook, Facebook.com/backslash/inthewhale. Their Instagram is in underscore the underscore whale. Check them out. They actually do have some shows as well coming up on the East Coast, and they're just all around badass. And shout out to Steve Evans. So thank you them for. Uh, being on the show and dude, we've been getting some great bands, like really legit ass bands. These aren't like some local yokels. These bands are on tour. They're getting record deals. They're doing things. Support in the whale. Check them out. And if you want to be sponsored on the show, you know what to do. Shoot me an email at the X Man Podcast at gmail.com. Remember that's EX. Or just drop up in the DM, say, yo, what's up? Holla doc. And then that is what I'll do. Okay. We do have a guest, and I apologize. The, the intro section is a little longer. I had to play a new Bad Wolf song. So that's just what I got to do. I had to do my rant. But, you know, we're here, all right? Uh, we're here. And you can always skip ahead. You can always just go right to the interview. If you're sick of me, you want to hear these songs, just, you know, but you know, but always check out the sponsor, though, because these are good bands. They're, they're kicking ass, and, they, you know, they're, they're bringing their A game. We have Mr. Sahaj Ticketin for the second time. Like I said, I don't have that many second-time guests on the show. But in many ways, the last time he was on the show, we we covered a good part of his career. Didn't cover everything because he's done a lot. And, uh, you know, he's just all around badass. He has a great haircut. We look like the same guy from behind. We could be cousins. <laughs> and I, I, I have to, I'm sure I mentioned this interview, but we have to thank Sweetwater Music in Fort Wayne, Indiana, who gave us their space to record this, the audio, we did some video. I think we're gonna put this up on YouTube as well. But Sahaj is like, he's one of these people that we can just, we can talk all, all, all day. He has, he's a badass and he has, he's a brilliant guy. And if you love him the first time, you're gonna love this. And if this is your first time listening to him, you're gonna dig it too. Check out my great conversation with Mr. Sahaj Ticketin. second journey on the X-Man podcast, this time live from Sweetwater Studios in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thank you to Sweetwater for hosting us and welcome back to the show. Awesome. I'm so stoked because we're actually in a room together, which is a, a rarity in today's universe. Yeah, well, you know, maybe we're looking at the end of this uh, this pandemic to some degree. I know there's a lot of complications with that, but uh, thinking about the last time we spoke and so much has changed 
you have uh, taken an exodus from Los Angeles, and now you live in Fort Wayne, which is kind of why we're uh, why we're doing this here. Can you give some background as to like kind of just catch us up between the last time you were on the show and and now what's happening in your life? So the first thing is, remember when you came the last time? You came to my house, and I wasn't ready for you. <laughs> I had another band that some guy had asked me to produce and write, and I was like, hey, just give me 45 minutes. And you sat there for 45 minutes waiting, and then we ran out of time. Had the, and then I came to your house, and we finished it. And uh, the chaos of L.A. was, you know, pretty much the, the reason why I left. You know, because there's a lot of stuff in L.A. that is really exciting and sort of, like, inspiring, but there's a lot of anxiety. Mm. And, you know, even that day, my level of anxiety, knowing you were there and some other band had to wait in the background, like there was so much stuff that was just so overwhelming about Los Angeles that I also sort of put on the back burner, like, because I just assumed it was part of what I had to deal to do in order to live there. And how the, long were you there? So I moved there in 2010. Okay, so okay, so you were there for a while. Ten not, years. Okay, that's that's good. So you know, and and for the first three years, I spent all my time convincing everybody that I wasn't just the raw guy. Like it was really hard to come into L.A. as a writer producer with a, one band and only one body of work to point at and try and tell everyone, no, I can do everything else. Nobody was, you know, no one was lining up. Although, I have to say, by the end of the third year. Uh, there were some really, really great projects that had come through, one of them uh, being this band called Downplay, which was the original band for Dustin from Starset. Mm. So I worked with uh, with him very early in 2010. It was a, a guy from uh, Epic Records called me up and said, hey, do you want to write with this dude? I think, it, I think it would be a good fit. And obviously he was thinking, I'm the raw guy. It goes with it. So anyway, he put it together. We ended up uh, working on stuff, and then the star set thing sort of erupted out of that, which became, of course, a, a nice-sized part of my life. Um, but Los Angeles was a tough psychological environment for somebody who, first of all, was a little bit older and needed to sort of find stability in some way. Like, I was, I was really at the end of my band life I, at least in my mind i was done sort of being a band guy right you're a family man so i'm sure that, that was a monumental but was, factor but i wasn't a family man at that point yeah. i mean i had my 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 girl then girlfriend we got married in 2011 but um she was you know someone that i i obviously was considering constantly when i was making decisions but you know, I really had a, sort of all the freedom in the world, but I didn't have mental freedom, which mm. was something that I was really paranoid about living in Los Angeles. I don't know how better to explain that, that you sort of become hyper paranoid about every move you make because you think there's a lot of bad things that can happen by making the wrong choice. Like what? Well, when I first moved there, you literally couldn't plan. I mean, I wouldn't even want to go away for the weekend because what if this guy called? Or what if that guy wanted to do something like that became that sounds like a sort of minor thing, but it's almost paralyzing. And weirdly, I found personally Los Angeles to be incredibly isolating as much as I thought I was going to be coming into this massive community of musicians and producers. It was hard to find people to actually just be friends with because yeah. there was no there was no social scene that wasn't related to music, and therefore you were only in the company of people who needed you for something. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, I think that's kind of intertwined with the 
the culture that turns off a lot of people about the place is that it is very go-getter, very ambition-oriented. And, you know, even with myself, most of my friends are involved in some way with the music industry or entertainment industry. And even though we're friends, there's always some kind of wrinkle to it that kind of crosses over between wanting to hang out with people that I guess have a uh, similar interests. But I, I do understand how that turns, turns some people off because, you know, I would say like LA, there's like the real world and there's LA. <laughs> and, he, and either you kind of vibe with that. Like me, I, I love the kind of, hustle and bustle of it. There's, there's definitely something about it where there feels like there's an opportunity around every corner, but at least with you, like worrying about that phone call on the weekend, at least that speaks to a level of, um, that you are in demand to some degree that people would, you'd have situations like that, which is good. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I was, I felt very fortunate. Um, because when I moved to LA, I had a bunch, I had, I had found a band in 2005 when I was still living in New Jersey. <coughs> that was a pop rock band, sort of like Third Eye Blind, but like meets the killers, right? It was this band called Madeline. Nobody ever heard of the band, um, but there was a lot of activity in terms of what I was doing with them and labels and a guy at Epic loved them and then they won this contest, the contest and then there was, I was playing it for Avery Lipman at Universal. I was, like, people were into this band. They sort of imploded but the thing that was really, and, and I was living in Florida at the time to work with them. The thing that was cool about it was two of those guys got up and left and went to LA to become pop producers. And they're slow, they, they slowly ascended to the point where they've made some really big records. And it was inspirational to me because I was their mentor. So I was like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna go to LA. So in going to LA, I had this sort of small community of people that worked in the pop universe that were very, very high up on the ladder. And they actually, weirdly, because they weren't rock people, they became my friends. But because I was associated with them, occasionally work would come my way because people knew I knew them. So in the beginning, there was sort of this pocket of people that knew I was the raw guy and was like, oh, everything that's in the rock universe that sort of seems like he could do would come to me. Um, and then there was also a bunch of people that I knew that were other band guys that would throw stuff at me because they were either working on a project or whatever it is. It was, it was fairly easy, honestly. But when I say easy, it took four years. Yeah. <laughs> it took from 2010 to 2014. And in 2014, the weirdest sort of anomaly, terrible, but great thing happened, which is I met a guy named Jeff Blue. Jeff Blue was the guy who signed Linkin Park. He was one of the guys who brought Chester from his Arizona band and put it in hybrid theory. And Jeff is to this day still doing music and still doing stuff. Um, but he was one of these guys that sort of showed up at my door, really the, 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 almost inexplicably, and he was one of these guys that had done so much stuff, but was also utterly L.A. Like he was so immersed deeply in everything L.A. He had a big house on the top of Hollywood Hills. And, Good for him. You know, and he was one of these guys that had such a successful run as an A&R guy, had a really good set of ears, could hear a hit, could smell talent from a mile away. Signed Daniel Powder, signed Macy Gray, had all of these really, really great sort of accolades that he could claim, but he was also a fairly dysfunctional guy. 
he was a guy that had a lot of uh social issues in terms of like is he gonna like listen to this and track me down and have me murder he's not gonna murder you he might <laughs> he might not be happy about what i'm saying but i think it's relevant to the la story because you know he was he was somebody that i felt compassionate for for most of our relationship and then there's always that flip point in a lot of la relationships where the business becomes more important than the relation yeah you know and i'm not going to throw jeff under the bus and say he was a bad person because he really wasn't it, to me he was more someone that was so immersed in the universe of los angeles that it was hard for him to see outside that there was other ways to behave and other ways yeah. to act and well, so that's a, that's a value thing, though. I think to, to some degree, you have to enforce your will upon an environment as opposed to letting the environment change your set of values, which is to say, hey, my values are I value for relationships and friendships over business. And some people kind of their mantra is business kind of trumps all. You know, it's like the, that old phrase like, hey, it's only business. And it basically gives people an excuse to act inhumanely <laughs> you know so that's i think that's a personal journey we all have to kind of figure out for ourselves yeah and and you what 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 i'm grateful first of all i, I learned a lot from him musically because i didn't i didn't really spend a lot of time listening to music well, how, as how did you work what was your working relationship with him so we worked on something I don't, i'm not going to mention the company but it was a company out there that would go out and find unsigned artists and offer them a connection to a high up music executive and basically would charge for that. So we would be doing demos and recordings. These like production deals? Not really production deals. It's more like just like you would you, basically you would be connected to an industry expert and you would initially get a consultation. That okay. consultation would lead to a session. You would charge that person money and you would make some some sort of a promise that the, the recordings were either going to be shopped or something like that. So, Not unlike a production. So it's kind of like a development workshop. Yeah. So <laughs> Artist it, development workshop. But something. one you pay for. No, yeah. No, I get that that aspect right. of it. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's the temptation <clears throat> to say yes to things that don't really necessarily have potential. Yeah. But he was an incredibly disciplined worker. Yeah. And he would book us. I mean, I went literally, uh, I'm talking 2014, all of a sudden I'm making six, seven thousand dollars a week. Good Lord doing this stuff with this guy and I'm not complaining That's about it. <laughs> I'm not complaining about it, but the but the the it's all again it gets to that line where there's a disconnect between what's actually happening, what I think is happening, what he's telling me what's happening, and then there's dishonesty and sort of uh, you know and the the personal relationship falls apart. So, I did that for a year and a half and it was I think I learned a lot. It helped me hone a lot of my producer skills, listening skills, I think the most. And um, I'm grateful for it because I definitely learned a lot of stuff. I learned a lot of stuff too. And I say this with, you know, with real conviction, I've learned how to get the bad ideas out because sometimes you've got to exercise the worst possible version of an idea before you can get to the good part. And I was always sort of a prideful dude and, and an artsy guy. So to me, if it wasn't super amazing, awesome at the beginning, I wasn't into it. But sometimes you just got to get the bad ideas out. And, and sometimes the bad ideas really do lead you to the right idea. I agree. Because the right idea isn't always the most artsy idea. And that was something I learned from him. Um, but the, 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 the trajectory from that point on was we have a mutual friend, Eric German, 
and our attorney, who um, I met just after that period for the first time. So he brought me into, uh, you know, the whole century media, you know, another century thing. And that sort of started my uh, direct working with labels because yeah. it was them, then it was Better Noise, then it was this and that, and or 11.7 at the time. And there was just projects that started coming to me on a regular basis that were label-based, which by the way, when you're a producer and you're coming up, you have a preconceived notion of what the record industry is. So you think you're doing the demos of the, the local band and you're trying to make a name and, da, 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 and then you finally get to the label and there comes the big budget and there comes the, the massive, you know, you get to go in and then the reality of it is that the record companies, of course, are very fearful of spending money because they want to maximize their reach. So they'd rather spend a little bit of money on a lot of bands than spend a lot of money on one band. So what you end up happening is, is you sort of have the pride of, yes, I'm working for a label, but their budgets weren't anywhere near what I thought they were going to be. And the creative control was also fairly a new experience for me because I had been a signed artist on Universal Republic, but my relationship with Avery Lippman and even Tom McKay in the beginning of our situation was incredibly respectful. But that was also a different era where there was just more money. Well, the the, the correct answer to that is it was the end of the era yeah. where there was more money. The last, and the last gasp of yeah, the, the I think old in my last industry. podcast, I mentioned with you how we ended up being sort of pigeonholed and, and chained to our budget. Yeah. You know? So one of the things... I'm kind of gleaning from some of the stuff you're saying is you had this one chapter where you were worried about kind of getting work and then all of a sudden you're kind of flooded with work. And, but I, I wonder if there's this idea where even when you're really busy, there's always that fear that you won't have work. So you kind of like, like, is it this thing where you have this almost say yes mentality and then almost it kind of veers into being a workaholic or being so like tuned into like, gotta work, gotta work, gotta work because maybe one day it'll dry up. Is that, does that ever factor in the kind of the way you think about this stuff? So one of the things that happened working with Jeff was we would do 10 hour days, six days a week. It's a lot of work. Every project. And what was happening is, is he was so diligent about booking these things that we were backlogged. We would, I would do projects, you know, because what people sometimes don't take into consideration is, is if you spend the day writing and recording, all of that stuff has to be edited. All of that stuff has to be put together and mixed. I mean, there's a back-end post-production aspect of making music that can, that can be. Sometimes it's not, but most of the time it's fairly time-consuming. Yeah. So if I'm literally working on a project for a week and then I have Sunday off and then I start the next project, of none of it is getting done. And that became a massive issue because you get to the point where you're saying yes to everything and then you've got people emailing you, Hey, I did a song with you three months ago. Where's the song? Yeah. You know, and you're sort of in a position where you have to explain, well, you could go to the guy who has all the time in the world or you could go to the guy who's backlogged because he's in demand. You have to choose. That's your choice. And my mission after that was to be able to, have a vocal editor in-house, have people in-house. And I started farming and delegating and, and doing this more efficiently. But even to this day, 
I still have the issue that you're talking about of saying yes to everything. We are literally sitting here today doing this, working with your girlfriend to Jasmine. record Jasmine to work to work on her music. And tonight at 11 o'clock, Johnny from Nothing More flies in, will sleep in the other room while you guys are sleeping downstairs. And tomorrow I have to start with him on doing some stuff for the next Nothing More record while I'm supposed to be rehearsing for the upcoming Raw tour. And the only reason this exists is because I've said yes to everything. I still do it, but now I do it out of arrogance because I'm an idiot. <laughs> now I do it because I think I can do everything. And oh. of course, now I stress out because oh. I get yelled at by my wife for not yes, spending enough time. That's what I'm saying. This thing's going to bite you in the ass. You better got to start. You know, the power of no, it's a strong, <clears throat> it's a, it's a strong thing. Uh, I kind of wanted to pivot based, you know, based on what you're talking about rehearsing with Ra. So you kind of had a shift in the last couple of years where you not only sang lead on the last Maytal record, but you actually went on tour with her. And then Ra also put out a new record, started playing shows for that. So you're kind of getting your foot back into being a performer, being a front man. Uh, how is, let, let's talk about the, the last Maytal record. Like how was that experience kind of almost becoming the, the front man by, by default? <laughs> you're the last man standing. So <clears throat> as I think most singers or frontmen are, I'm incredibly insecure about the way I look. <laughs> I'm incredibly self-deprecating and critical. And my the reason why I didn't do another Raw record from 2013 on, the reason why I didn't front another project for seven years or six years was because I didn't feel good. I didn't feel confident about having to take pictures and having, I mean, literally that was it. By the time the Maytal project came to me, this is the first, the first record we did with Eric Emery. Eric sang it. He then joined Sky Harbor. So on the second album, we had to find a singer. We spent four months auditioning people and in the auditioning process, they had to sing my parts. Yeah. And you sing high. <laughs> well, it was the high thing, but it was also Maytal personally, you know, there was a little bit of demoitis going on. Yeah, where she, you're she, used to the way it sounds. You like the way it sounds. She was very attached to the way I sounded on the demos so that when we would get other people, even if they were close, it just, she was like, no, it doesn't sound right to me. And I'm like, okay. And then I basically said, look, I, I, I'm willing to sing this record, but I can't, I, I didn't want to negotiate certain things. I said, I'll sing it, but I don't want to have to sort of compromise on anything. I just want to write the songs to the best of what I'm feeling and all of this stuff, but I, but I will be respectful of your tastes. So, but I didn't want any sort of like creative shackles of any kind. And I was very happy with that record. I thought that record was a really good sort of ex exploration of what I would consider mathy music. And I also realized through the making of that album that the fact that I hadn't toured since 2013 or 14, that my voice was still pretty well preserved. Yeah. You know, I hadn't spent 200 shows a year making it sounds like leather, you know? So I, I, my voice still sounds really fresh and I was like, okay, so let's make this really hard. And then I made the record insanely high, like, like almost, almost embarrassingly high for some of these songs. And then 
when we did the shows, I regretted all of it because yeah. it was Im almost, you saw one of the shows, but that I thought was, you were great. It was almost impossible. Like yeah. I never had more anxiety singing anything than I did singing those songs. But what it did do for me is it one, it's so, the reaction from the fans, her fans, but also people that knew me from Ra was healing. And I was like, oh, I can still be a fat guy and go up and do shows. And it doesn't really ruin it. But right? you had fun on tour. You enjoyed the experience. I, I, I had touring for me has always, whether we're talking 2002 or we're talking right now, touring has always been about what happens after the show. Yeah. Because to me, the validation of what the work that I put up on the stage comes from seeing the afterglow of the audience. Yeah. Hanging out with them, talking to them, seeing them telling me how this song got them through high school or when this helped them through a hard time or whatever. That to me, that's the joy of touring for me. Is that direct contact. The shows themselves and the traveling is a nightmare for me because the shows themselves are, I, I have fun on like, do you call my name? Because it's so easy to play live and it's so popular. But when I'm doing something that's ambitious, I'm just- You're focused, you're like focusing on the I, task. I'm, I'm essentially in pain the entire song because I just, <laughs> I'm never comfortable. But the, you know, and I have a high bar. Like I don't want, people to come see a raw show and feel like they've seen this show before. Like I want them to leave like saying not only was the band unique in its own way, but I've never heard anybody sing like that. Did um, the Mates Hall album and tour, did, was any of that inspiration to get Raw back up and running and put out a record? Absolutely. I mean, the song, we put out a single called Armalite. And the Armalite song was a joy for me because I was able to get Clint Lowry. By the way, what is an Armalite? So, okay, so here's... That's not like I'm some pat, de this, not deodorant this, or something? This is me patting myself <laughs> on the shoulder. But but we, you know how the gun debate in this country is extremely intense. Yes. So most people think the AR-15 stands for assault rifle. But the AR in assault in, in, in AR-15 is actually Armalite. So the, the name of the company Man, is Armalite. I just learned something, bro. Yeah. So the more the, you know. It's the Armalite 15. <laughs> That's why it's called that. So the... When I was thinking of something, I, I you know how hard, here's, as a songwriter, one of the hardest things in the universe to do is find a word that hasn't been sung to death yeah. that you can sing in the chorus of a song a whole bunch of times and it not, and it sound right. Or, the, and this is something hip hop artists do really well, is they just make up new words. Sure. Other, other good, but yeah. here's the thing, I'm, I'm gonna put that away for later. Yeah, you know, well, good idea. Yeah, and 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 on that, the, the quickest little side note on what you just said about hip hop artists, Drake has a song out where he kept on talking about I got so many M's, I got so many M's. It took me like four, five days of stressing about what M's are to figure out it was instant messages. I figured it out in just two seconds. But See, right. but it, that's what I'm saying. Like I didn't know what he was <laughs> or talking I guessed. about. I was like M I M instant message. Right. right. But you know, like he just said it as if everybody says M's. I'm like, oh, I guess everybody says M's. So there it is. Now I'm now I can be young again. That's right. We got to be creative with our language. Yeah, but the 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 Armalite thing. So you know, I get this song Armalite. Well, I, I remember like, that's a hook. Yeah, and it's a weird word, and you you have to look it up to know what it is. And then we made this video that was sort of both sides of the gun argument. It sounds like respectful. air freshener. That's what it sounds like to me. Man, you got some Armalite, man. It's a little it's a little musty in here. <laughs> Armalite. I, I thought of it as a cleaning fluid. Exactly. You got to clean, clean out the, the, the sink with the Armalite. That's right. But, I love it. But yeah, so that song was satisfying. Got Clint Lowry 
uh, from Seven Dust to play guitar and write the chorus with me. Awesome. Which was just another one of those things where you just sort of like, you spent all these years trying to get your name relevant, and then you can just call Clint and be like, Clint, write this part. And well, he did it. You, well, you can. So, but that's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> it takes a lot, of energy, a lot of energy, you know? Anyway, so that song and the whole process of doing it, it just made me feel like, you know what? Not only do I feel empowered to front a band again, I feel empowered to front my band again. And immediately, I started compiling in my brain sort of what the album was going to be in terms of what style I wanted it to be, where I was going, you know. And, and as soon as I, the biggest hitch to this entire thing was calling the rest of the band and saying, hey, guys, it's been seven years. You want to make another record? Um, because they all have their own lives now. They've all moved on. They're all doing things that are relevant and important to them personally. And I really felt strongly that it, it just it was there was no point in doing a raw record with a bunch of other guys and not getting the original dudes back, especially Scooter, my drummer, who I've been with since 1996. How collaborative is it? I mean, you're such a kind of singular songwriter type guys it's still like you doing things and sending it to guys or is there is it collaborative or is it still your kind of thing so in terms of the the song templates the song templates are essentially preformed i i write everything as songs um i finish the songs in their sort of um it, it's it's a naked body with no clothes on yeah and then you allow them to kind of so what impose. i what what I wasn't prepared for, because it had been such a long time, was how transformative these guys playing on it actually was. When Scooter played the drums on the songs, not only did it give it new life, it actually made me feel like, oh my God, now I actually have to work on this record because it's that much better. Yeah, well, and that's, when I well, that's, sent, what, that's a good band though. Yeah, and then when I sent, I sent the tracks to Ben, who, you know, he does this thing now where he sits and meditates with these Tibetan bowls and he has an entire business that runs around this and it's fantastic and he sings and it's a whole thing. And his energy is very, very mystical. He's got the white hair. He's got the whole, you know, you might as well be floating and, and levitating the whole time. But um, I sent him these songs and, you know, in fairness to Ben, he hadn't recorded any music in several years, not to mention rock. And I can't even tell you how transformative everything he sent back was. Like all the stuff on the most important songs too, by the way. You know, there's a song on our record called Jezebel that when I wrote it, I said, I'm friend, you know, I'm now friends with Jason Hook, uh, ex Five Finger guy. And I was 100% sure I was gonna have Jason do the guitar solo on it. And Jason was busy and it didn't work out, but I gave it to Ben and what Ben sent back, no disrespect to Jason, was so much more than what I thought it could have been. Yeah. That I was like, oh my God. And then Ben just really consistently returned ideas and, and parts with sensitivity and feeling. I just, I don't know. Everything really took a big leap forward when everybody played on it. And the weird thing also was like, I had that weird internal recognition of the band, meaning like it sounded like us 10 years ago. Yeah. And I was like, oh, snap, except with newer writing, because I write for all these other bands. So I'm able to take all the stuff I've learned in those and apply them in a raw context. Um, and then again, because I haven't abused my voice, I thought I was able to sing in a way that if I had put this record out 10 years ago and you listen to the vocal performances, you wouldn't feel like the guy got 10 years older. 
It really feels youthful. It feels strong. I think I'm actually a better singer now. I think I use way less energy to make sound than I used to. And I think that the album is fantastic. And I've never made a record in my entire life. I've never made a record with any artist where I listen to it from the beginning to end and feel satisfied. Yeah. But I do with this record. That's great. Yeah. And you've you did some touring previously, right? Or you haven't, or the tour come so up is the first tour. So what happened was we were booked for Shiprock 2020, which we did. And we had already had the album basically in the can written, but it wasn't finished, finished. Gotcha. And then we were going to sort of take our time a couple of months, finish the album, and then do a tour uh, summer 2020. Obviously, COVID hits. Um, a weird blessing because uh, not only do I move from Los Angeles to Fort Wayne, Indiana, but it gave me sort of a laboratory setting to get really deep on the planning aspect of what this album was going to be. So from a sound design standpoint, uh, this album is far more complex than any other record we'd ever had. But I specifically made sure that the sound design was not in, would not overshadow the performances of the band. So there's as much as there's many layers of synths and things happening in certain songs, um, there's still the organic left, right guitar, bass and drums in my vocal. Right? You tried to keep it a little more minimal or I just that, I, that, I had learned right so word. my my work with Starset is very, very, very educational for me because Dustin is a person that is incredibly planned. Everything is thought of in advance. He literally, when he writes songs, thinks about what playlists they're going to go on on Spotify. He's like, this is for Adrenaline. This is for Rock Hard. This is for, like, he literally has, and this is for Rock Radio. This is for my internet fans. He has it all so mapped out. He once sent me a picture of him working on Vessels, which is an album that I have four songs on. He sent me a picture of his room, and it looked like the set of Homeland because there was, like, a giant... A chalkboard with a thing in the middle and strings coming down and pictures of terrorists and lo you know and stars and songs like it looked like a mad scientist's room for a record you know and and it was very it, for me I don't I never made a record like that I've always made records of, oh I got a cool riff oh what could this be about oh it's fallen angels okay so what is this oh okay and it would just end up a group of songs and then I would figure out how to make it an album where on this album I was like oh no I need I need a song to be the cousin of Sky, which is an old famous one of a fan favorite raw song. I need the Do You Call My Name. I need the rectifier for this record. I, like I had everything compartmentalized, but I also was really motivated to sort of creatively be outside the box, mm. you know, because obviously working with all the bands that I work with, there's a lot of pressure to sort of satisfy the rock radio aesthetic. And with the raw stuff, I wanted that to happen, but as a byproduct of the writing and not as the focus. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel 
They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. It is now 2024, and the choice is up to you. Do you listen to good podcasts, or do you listen to bad ones? Well, we've got a suggestion for you. How about you listen to a good podcast for the first time in your miserable life? I can think of one. Overnight Drive. Going strong. 11 years now. The podcast about nothing. Your favorite podcast's favorite podcast. Do you enjoy nothing? <laughs> so do we. Why don't you come over and check it out and stop listening to other podcasts? Thank you. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I actually wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about, we didn't, I don't think we really talked about this on the last time, which is actually how you write. So, uh, the album's not out yet, but you wrote a, a Bad Wolf song yeah. that's, uh, for their forthcoming album and it's not out yet. It's a really cool song though. And it was, it was a funny thing because, uh, <laughs> we, there was a song that existed. I don't think we even knew that you were involved. It was like this total, like backwards kind of thing of, of figure, figuring it all, all out. So it's a band like bad wolves. Right. And you're like sitting down. Okay. I'm, I want to write a song for this band. I mean, how, so how does the, a process like that even start? Like, what do you kind of your thinking cap or, or, or do you just, you, you tell me how it goes. So what happens a lot in my line of business because of the volume of work that I do, right? I can, there are months where I'm averaging between 12, 10 to 15 songs a month. Yeah. If I have three bands come in in a four week period and I'm writing three songs, four songs with each band, I'll end up with 12 new songs that I just wrote in a month, right? Yeah. So in the context of that, every once in a while, somebody will hit me up and say, can you write for this band? And can you write for this band? Now, now is there a definitive difference between writing for and writing with? Yes. So writing for is in a vacuum. Yeah. Somebody says to you, hey, this is the band. Go listen to their catalog. And I want you to create something that would work for them, but we need a single. Yeah. It's always a single, right? And it needs to be something exciting, whatever it is. So in the case of, of what I can't say the title because this record's not out yet. Yeah. But, <laughs> but in the case of this particular song, 
someone called me, who shall remain nameless, <laughs> and said to me, can you write a song for the band Islander? Okay. <laughs> so I wrote a template for this song that was sort of weird and rappy and had this weird thing going on in it. And the idea of that sort of sat on a shelf. And then he who remains nameless at a certain point decided that was he was going to work on it. So the best way to write a Babel song is just to write an Islander song. <laughs> no, no, because this has happened. By the way, there's songs on the Raw record. I mean, I have a song called I Can't Go On, which I originally wrote for Ice Nine Kills. Yeah. No, no, trust me. This this has happened with me a bunch of times, too, where it's like stuff I've worked on for Vegas Nerve ends up with Bad Wolves or stuff that someone asked me to write for this thing ends up with another project. So I've Yeah. I mean, and, you know, there were songs that I specifically wrote for Bad Wolves that I think are going to end up on other people's records. Yeah. You know, so it's there's there's literally, um, I, you know, in in my line of business. Right. My 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 uh, uh, what do you call it? Money. My uh, what is the word for money? Why can't I think of money? Money. <laughs> Why is money not a good word? for money? <laughs> well, my money is. Uh, is the songs currency currency my currency is the go. songs yeah and of course so you know there's a lot of weirdness sometimes when you write a song for somebody and then it doesn't end they hear it they say no and then it comes out on somebody else's yeah. record but i mean but i'm talking about just the kernel of it like when you sit down to work on something what's your process like oh my process is very is is now very very specific it, it used to be a lot more but sort do you of pick free. up a guitar do you pick up a keyboard do you think of a it is 85% of the time me picking up a guitar, but the, the chords are almost unimportant to me. Yeah. It's more about, can I come up with a set of chords that inspires me to write a melody yeah. that I know I can expand upon? Yeah. So the second I have a melody, then I'm like, okay. And then what usually happened is the, the, the guitar goes down because my first, my first, and this is me being honest, my first bad move would be to try and write a song with just guitar. And the reason I say that is I'm not the youngest guy in the world. And I know that I've been playing guitar for such a long time that I do things automatically with the guitar that are limiting. So as soon as I have chordal structure and shapes, I usually translate it into some sort of a keyboard pattern that I can then layer guitars on top of. Yeah. But it's more about figuring out the chord structure and the vibe and making it sound new. I'm a huge fan of modern music, trap music, Post Malone, Kendrick Lamar, you know, everybody. So the, um, the production styles of a lot of that are based on sort of a collaborative disregard for the form yeah and if you can have a little bit of a detachment to the traditional aspects of music i think it's a lot easier to write things that are effective in 2021 how do you when you're writing up to 15 songs a month or something how do you feel at least like you're not repeating yourself like how do you know it's not i think the hardest thing for me as a songwriter is figuring out my barometer to know what's good, right? And so, so I, I, you know, and I've worked with you. So I, so sometimes like I need someone like you, right? Another songwriter, another producer there who can kind of give me the thumbs up 
on whether an idea is cool. But when I'm on my own, I'm like, I'm working stuff like, is this even good? Is this cool? You know, sometimes you need to like, I don't know if you do this. Sometimes I'll write some stuff. I'll put it away, come back two days later. Like, oh, no, this is actually good. But you're so much in the judgmental space. Are you just able to kind of in such a flow state where you don't really over you're not overly critical and that allows you to kind of get the ideas out? So in going back to my original description of saying if the melody is inspiring, I'm exceptionally good at not being attached. Yeah. So if the melody is good, I don't really care what's going on behind it. Yeah. So because I know and when you say melody, you mean the vocal melody, the vocal melody. So if the vocal melody is doing something that, you know, is in relation to whatever chords I've chosen, there are so many millions of ways that I can work the production to make sure that the melody doesn't get sacrificed. The yeah. thing I never want to sacrifice is a good melody. Unfortunately, from my perspective, and this goes back to our last podcast, guitar is fairly disposable from my perspective. I don't really care that much about what the guitars are doing in the writing process. I do care about it once it becomes a question of color. And I'm like, how am I going to color this track using guitars in a way that allows it to be not only exciting, but somehow stand out and be unique, but also, you know, I'm always looking for a form of beauty. Yeah. You know, and it, what's funny is, is when I when we talk about Bad Wolves, I always talk about the guitar playing and how unique and special it is, which is counter to what I just said. But, but that depends on the that's that every band is different. But what I was gonna say is in a in a in an honest way, as heavy as some of those songs are, I find beauty in it. It's not just the power of um what's the first song on uh on the Disobey record. Officer Down. And what's the second one? Um, Learn to Live. Learn to Live. So that intro, which, you know, the, that oh, whole thing. No, 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 that's, your, that's I'll Be There. It's the first okay, song. Okay, so that's a, I'll Be There with the first single. Of right? Nation. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So like on that song, as heavy as that is, I find beauty in it. I find the fun factor of how exciting a song like that is to me. There's, there's a, there's, there are songs that are brutal but don't stir me emotionally. And that was, you know, that was the thing I was talking about. So in the context of writing songs, whether it's for a heavy band or whatever, once the guitars go in, their job into me, to me is to stir that beauty, whether it's the Metallica heavy metal stir beauty or some pretty, you know, Coldplay thing. It just, all of the guitar's job is to be the swirly universe, you know, but I didn't grow up like that. You know, in the first couple of Raw records, I would sit there and slave over riffs slave over riffs and now without being a dick i sort of shit riffs out yeah they're easy to me yeah because you're not being precious and you're kind of you're i think but i think that's and this is me just being more um you know trying to understand the process and open up that kind of creative valve because i historically for me not to make it about me but i'm just getting my perspective was it was always like Okay, we're in album mode, we're in touring mode. We're in album mode, we're in touring mode. And so you would kind of, and it, it was always at the end of the album mode that you were the most open. And you would always like write like some of your coolest stuff right at the end because you're, you because it, it takes a while to kind of pry that open. But it seems like for you, because it's your job, you, the floodgates are kind of just open so you can kind of tap into it. 
Well, there's a couple of things that I, I consider luxuries, right? The first thing is, is that when you've got an artist and you've got a time for limit and they're sitting there looking at you like, here's all this money, <laughs> make, give me a career. That pressure doesn't fuck you up? I mean, of course, in the beginning, I was certainly more sensitive to it, but now there's sort of an unspoken contract. You know, if you're coming to me. Or literal contract. Well, yeah, but there's a, but I'm seeing creatively there's an, there's, I usually don't, you know, my contracts with bands are not, they don't have any reference to creativity. Yeah. But the creative contract is, is that you're coming to me, I'm driving the bus. If you don't want me to drive the bus, don't come to me. Yeah. So once people know that that's sort of the thing, it, 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 it opens the door for me to show them what it is that I'm able to do. If I show them, most of the time when I show people what I'm able to do with where they are at that moment, it just breeds an enormous amount of trust and I'm able to sort of move quickly. Hmm. There are occasions where people come in who have extremely preconceived notions on what music is supposed to be, in which case I just don't fight it and I will do what they want but ultimately, I've already, I already know there's going to be, okay, well, this might be a step up for you, but this isn't going to be sort of an, an exponential step for you guys. Because I just know you need to get to a certain level in order to be noticed. Um, but yeah, in terms of writing this many songs, you know, one of the things I wanted to make sure I say is I really don't like garbage. I don't like bad songs. And I know that sounds weird to say. You don't say. think that's relatively subjective? No. Interesting. I don't. Because there's a, you know, if every time I listen to the top 40 songs, I sort of agree with them, mm -hmm. then obviously I'm, I'm dealing with, you know, it, it, there's no difference between making a soda and making a song. People will either like the soda and drink a lot of it. Or they won't. Well, to, to some degree, that's like the customer's always right. Right, exactly. And I sort of feel that the customer is always underestimated. Mm. Because I feel that music in a lot of genres, not all, but in a lot of genres, there's a lot of music that works for the short term. It's designed to create a short term return because it either has an aspect of, it's either, it's either specifically for that artist meant to last a short time to bring them to something else or it is a song that just by its dna has a short shelf life and there's a lot of stuff like that that gets promoted because you, you can make a quick return and then that's that that's the business part of this um i personally miss the days when you listen to a record for a year you know and i don't know I'm too old to have perspective. Maybe when Mason, my son, turns 15, maybe he'll listen to records for a year. But the teenagers that I know and the bands that I work with that are young, they don't seem to have that thing. I think I listened to Injustice for All for like a year. Well, but actually, but I'd, I'd kind of extend that where I go, I think the best records, you listen to them forever, right? Like, like, like you have like the Black Album, uh, you know, uh, 30th anniversary, I think, whatever. Yeah, 30th anniversary. And that record still sells more than almost every rock album comes out every week. And that's because 12 year old kids, at, you know, are still discovering that record. I think certain records just, they never leave your kind of lexicon to some degree. So I hear what you're saying. By the way, and this kind of filters into 
how I the, the thing wants to wrap this up because I, I remember listening back to our previous conversation and for some reason I don't know if it was the mood I was in or just something you bring out of me I was so antagonistic <laughs> on that episode I don't know I don't why I was remember. like everything you said I was like I had a counter for it I was like I was like I was in full on debate mode so I want to apologize actually because I felt I was like it wasn't very becoming I, I feel like well, but, uh, first of all I'm half Puerto Rican and half Jewish <laughs> New York guy so but I'm like, talking about my energy in, in my family <laughs> arguing is the language of love yeah but I felt I felt it was a little and an, an antagonistic I think sometimes someone makes a point I immediately want to counterpoint so I uh but it was mainly in this topic like where we were kind of trying to talk about the state of music yeah, and stuff sure. and this it, but it's something when the microphones aren't on you and i talk about incessantly it's fun yeah. it's 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 fun for us so i'd love to get your your perspective on this so please elaborate about this year album theory. Uh, so i'm going to try and make this concise because sure. this is something i could literally talk about all day but the, but the real to me production styles technology and delivery system of music have all contributed to a disposable mentality when it comes to music yeah even in the pop genres where there's massive budgets for these songs and the songs you know harry styles made one of the best records in the recent history right david bowie songs this song crazy song, like all of this really interesting super artsy stuff that possibly had he made it in 1990 he'd be you too not that Harry Styles is having any problems having no, an audience. No, he's fine. He's fine. <laughs> but my point is, is that the shelf life of things is so diminished. And a lot of that has to do with production styles being so easily accessible, accessible and music being, you know, there's an, in the pop community, there are literally guys who are considered laptop producers. That's what they're called. Phineas with uh, Billie Eilish. He's a laptop producer because he does everything in logic and he does it in a very, very simple way. He's so good. And he's unbelievably amazing <laughs> he's at so it. He's so good. Yeah. I mean, it, it, is, it is an entire thing that you can do with a laptop. Yeah. And that changes how long, you know, if every kick and every snare sounds awesome and every keyboard patch has the same plugins and everybody has access it's to the same the songs sounds, then, right? it becomes about the singer. It becomes the singer and the songs. The gotcha. songs become super duper important, but remember that someone like, I always use Lady Gaga as a perfect example. She has some songs that are good. Me personally, I'm not someone that has ever listened to the Lady Gaga catalog. Do I love Lady Gaga? Yes, a lot. Because her talent and her voice and her branding are so unbelievably well done that it almost doesn't matter that I don't care a lot about her songs. I would say the same thing for Beyonce, to can be I, honest. Can I ask a question, though? When you say uh, the singer, do you mean it in terms of that total package? Or is it, are you talking about literally just how good they sing? Or do you mean the look and the branding and the well, and, and the character? Because me, sometimes I always feel like, uh, at least in the the more rock world that I'm you know, you know, part of, I find that the character of the voice almost matters more than the technical ability of the singer. Like what basically meaning when you hear that singer, you know who it is, that it it sticks out, that that's almost more important than that they're some operatically perfect pitch vocalist. Correct. And I think that, you know, 
the difference now is because there's a max, there's a much higher saturation level of artists. Yeah. So now it's harder to be unique because there are just so many competing, you know, artists for your attention all the time. Um, so what does become a little bit more important, like I've said this, I said this yesterday to somebody, I don't know who we were talking to, but the Billie Eilish phenomenon, right? And we talked about Phineas briefly. When I lived in LA, I must have produced anywhere between five and seven whispery Silver Lake girls. I never heard that style before her though. I did. Yeah. That I was did, a, that I was did, a, that was a thing. I did entire records yeah. with people that were whispery and pouty and dry with weird little quirky production. So why did she win and all of those other people that I knew didn't? And my my personal opinion is is that not only was the tone of her voice fantastic, not only was the control of her pitch and tempo fantastic, the basic, the core elements, she was able to sing with a level of detail, which is something that I always tell singers that they're not really focused on. Most singers spend all their time on pitch and tempo and all of that stuff. They forget that how you say a syllable is just as important as the word and the note you're saying. So the, the inflections and the detail you can inject from moment to moment are so unbelievably important today. You know, Post Malone, right? There are people who would argue, well, he's a white rapper. That's why he's got this. He's got that. When, when I mean, he, consider him a rapper. He's a singer. <laughs> well, they, he's a trap artist. Yeah. So, you know, when Congratulations came out, it was months before I knew he was a, black, a white guy. I thought it was a black dude singing that song. But. The magic of Post Malone to me is, yes, he writes super hooky melodies. Yes, he has this thing. Yes, he has exactly what you're talking about, this unique quality to his voice. But it's also how he delivers each line. Each line has its own sort of universe of, of inflection and style. Yeah. The person that I, talk, that I point to uh, in the pop universe, to me, who does this flawlessly all the time is Rihanna. Rihanna can sound like a different person based on the song she's singing. You know, the, sing, the, the, the Rihanna verse on, on work is different than the song she'll do with Calvin Harris. And it just sounds like a whole thing. So in the rock world, right, getting into it, because there's so much noise, and I'm using noise respectfully, it's good noise, it's noise we like, there's not a lot of room for subtlety. Yeah. So that's why someone like Ollie Sykes wins. Because Ollie Sykes is a guy who knows how to work those quiet moments in such an intimate way that you can't ignore it and girls like it. Well, you also, that's also, I think, on the musical side where you have to carve out space for that. Yeah, but even, but even if you carve out the space, if the singer doesn't have those tools in their yeah. toolbox, he's just singing soft. Yeah. Singing soft <laughs> is not emoting and having yeah. character and color. You know, the, the, the analogy that I, or the, the story that I said, the thing that was transformative in me in this, in, this, uh, in this subject was I was watching an interview with Martin Scorsese. And, you know, I've been writing music for years and years at this point. This is even that long ago, maybe, maybe eight years ago. I see an interview with Martin Scorsese and he says, well, movies are just a series of moments. And as simple as that is, my brain went, and I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, there's no part of a song 
that doesn't have the job of getting you to the next moment. Every part of every song, of every vocal, of every guitar part's job is to get you to the very next moment of the song. And it goes back to the thing that sort of got me started in all of this, which was Paul McCartney. Because Paul McCartney, to me, was the guy who mastered leading tones and the ability to make sure that he controlled when you listened and when you stopped listening. He was a master at making melodies and, and lyrics and vibes and color that were impossible to ignore. And that to me is a lot of what I'm personally missing as the old guy in the room when I listen to a lot of newer music. Because there are guys that are out there that are genuinely talented. I, I am a huge Danny Warsnup fan. Asking Alexander. He's a beast of a singer, man. He's a beast of a singer. He's a beast of a person. He's incredibly, he's articulate. He's, he's He has these things that I'm talking he's about. He's a rock star. He is. And, and I still sometimes want more because I feel like let's make a little more space. And they, they, they did do that on the last record, actually, I think. Uh, the new record is going to be different, I think. But, the, but, the, but anyway, I'm just sort of saying out loud that there's just not enough guys who have the skill set in my opinion, to have a wide dynamic range, but still manage to get on the radio. Yeah, but it seems, from my estimation, that there's probably a lesser talent pool to pull from because a lot of these people that maybe would have been playing rock 30 years ago are doing different genres. But it does seem like from the top down, pop artists are kind of indulging themselves in rock music and they're kind of, you know, whether it's MGK or a Post Malone or Miley Cyrus and even someone like Lil Nas X where I don't to me doesn't make rock music but he is a rock star if that makes you know what I'm saying like to me he acts more like that and he represents the things that a David Bowie would represent kind of culturally um in terms of being irreverent in terms of playing with you know things like gender and sex and all and just being that person for the for the moment and and i think it's, it's all kind of filtering down to rock even if it's not this direct thing where we just expected young kids to grow up and just straight up join a rock band i think it's this this you know i've completely flipped around because i think every six months to a year we get that rock is dead article sure. right and uh which I mean, i'm not saying that's these articles don't make salient points but i just don't think it's that linear i think it's a lot more like herky-jerky right it's like two steps well, forward one step back and there's to, a your, to your exact point <clears throat> you know i mean olivia rodrigo doing these songs you know that have like good for you i mean it, it, there's a there's a part in good for you that is directly lifted from basket case i mean there's no there's 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 an what it has what it is is there's there's sort of a cyclical thing that happens right so we're always talking i always say the same thing to bands because bands will come in and they'll play me something that is dated but when it's dated to me it's 10 years old or maybe yeah. 15 years old but once you get to 20 years old and 25 years it becomes old, cool then you're talking about it's cool again and you know we had bands like lit and blink 182 and green day you know that period of time those songs were massively successful. It's a color we haven't really heard that much. So when MGK comes out doing pop punk with Travis Barker and Olivia Rodrigo, arguably the biggest artist right this moment, 
is putting out songs with Green Day parts in it. And, you know, and everybody's adding Willow distortion. Willow Smith, too. Willow it? Smith is doing a punk song. And, and like I said before, with Harry Styles making, you know, classic rock records, there's there's an understanding that the audience doesn't have the preconceived notion that the labels do or that the formats do. So because of radio not really being able to control the, the dialogue anymore, and because people can cross-pollinate without suffering a punishment, right? Because in the old days, if you put out a song that had a rock thing, but you were a pop artist, it wouldn't get to your audience. It was so segmented. Right, you would never, it would just wouldn't get there. So now Spotify's happy to promote good for you as much as it's happy to promote some other song in the same context, even though they have different elements. There's no, the audience decides what's popular. And so because of that, I think rock is making a comeback, but it's making a comeback that is, you know, not necessarily really reflective or involves the metal community at all. You know, the metal community is more sort of doing the opposite, in my opinion. In my opinion, the metal community spends a lot of time and effort trying to sound like, you know, Miley Cyrus and, 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 uh, and Halsey, you know, but it... it, it but by the same token, I think the the wideness of the net that's now cast every time you put a song out is really exciting for rock artists. Yeah, I I think there's something about like um, so when Post Malone did that Nirvana sure. uh, stream, it's like I think what appeals a certain a newer generation to something like that is that. When you hear a Nirvana record or hear a Led Zeppelin record, even if you're some 15-year-old kid, you kind of can't fake that authenticity. Right. Right? Like, it just, there's just something kind of undeniable about it. The same thing when you watch, you know, you put on, like, Jaws or something. Right. Like, no matter what you do, what cameras you use, what how, the way you light it, you can never make a movie look like that and feel like that again. Right. There's just something about that. And I, so I think there's something that makes these recordings and these artists feel evergreen. And so it's, so that's what I'm saying. There's just something, that's what well, I said about this idea about an album that's great. I'm gonna listen to it forever, right? Well, here's, here's a couple of things about what you just said. So the first thing that I always used to point out even years ago when I was first starting to get into producing and writing is, is that you have to remember back when technology was one of extremely expensive not that great. You know, the bandwidth of tape recordings in the 70s was, you know, they didn't, they couldn't get down to like 30 hertz, 40 hertz. That wasn't even a frequency. You know, like you didn't have low, low. You couldn't make a record that way. And the, on top of it, it wasn't you, low end till like you 1990. And you couldn't print it on vinyl because if it was too low, it would ruin the vinyl. So there's so many reasons why back in those days, the only thing you could do was be great. You couldn't get away with editing a record because there was no editing tools. Yeah. You could cut up tape the way Queen did, you know, because they would cut up tape to make those crazy vocals and all those harmonies. That's how they did it. But it's incredibly time consuming, incredibly expensive, and it just wasn't available to everyone. So the idea of editing and having these things, you had to play. Yeah. You know, you had to be able to play your instrument. You had to have a song that in itself was a hit regardless of the production the song had to be a hit What's and the I, person no, had to be you know what I like about the 70s all right ugly pop stars all right people come up 
big nose, you know what I'm saying, pimples. But you know what? They can sing good. They can write good. They can play good. They can dance, all right? You know, now it's like there's that line from the Netflix pop documentary series where the guy goes, great, now we have auto-tune. Now all I have to do is look for good-looking people, and it makes my job easier. And I know there's always that debate about, New music versus old music is music getting worse. Some, you know, a lot of people have their opinions, but there's some things that are definitively just true. Right. That, yes, there are a lot of people now that would not have careers 20 years ago if it wasn't for technology. Oh, sure. That, that, that's a fact. And because of that, I think the overall. And by product... the way, specifically, the price of technology is relevant because a lot of these guys, if Auto Tune was $10,000, mm. there wouldn't be. As many singers that we know, because yeah. it would be very difficult to make a demo that anybody cared about. And by the way, this filters down to drummers. This sure. filters down oh. to guitar players. There's plenty of, so it's not just singers that there's a lot of people that wouldn't uh, be able to hack it, that we'd see on a stage be exposed. And we go, this band isn't that great. Where now it's like they got tracks or they got, what you know, all kinds of things to yeah. kind of uh, blur the edges yeah. to, to, to some degree. And that's, to me, one marker that... Well, there's certain things that are just were definitively better. That it's not really we can't really argue about certain things. Doesn't mean everything's better, right? Uh, there's certainly, but uh, there's certain, at least to my and I think a lot of that is just also taste, right? What you like, like there's some people where if you play something from a certain era to their ears, it's just not going to sound as good because they're used to right. a certain frequency range or the vocals being perfectly pitched or mm -hmm. or whatever, you know. Uh, it's just a lot of that is just preference. Yeah, and the and the 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 good news, in my opinion, with that, is is that because of Spotify and because of streaming, there's literally nothing that holds back a young person from discovering things that were outside of their range. Mm. That is a beautiful thing to me. If I go online and I have a raw fan that's 18 years old, and I post a pic, I post a YouTube video of a Prince song that I love. And he goes and listens to it and becomes a Prince fan. That is something that just wasn't you didn't. Technology makes that possible. Yeah, discovery. Yeah, and it, and it also fixes one aspect of what I'm talking about in the sense that it preserves, you know, it because I some people will make the argument that young people they recycle, right? So every 15 years you get a new audience. That's why you can sort of write the same song every 15 years. That's not the case anymore. Because now, if somebody reads a blog on a YouTube page that says, you know, this Jonas Brothers song is really a Hall & Oates song, they're going to go and listen to the Hall & Oates song because they want to know. Not everybody. <laughs> but I'm just saying that's going to there's – there's a significant part of the music community that I believe prides itself on sort of being an active critic yeah, or you can be like Pharrell, and then Marvin Gaye's uh, state sues you. <laughs> well, yeah, that happens too. But I'm just saying, in terms of the fact that I think young people get exposed to music, like it, you can't rip off of Led Zeppelin. My, you know, I, I think we got a friend. You could definitely rip off Led Zeppelin. You know why? Because Led Zeppelin ripped off all their shit. <laughs> well, that's true. But I'm, but you know, like in the in the Greta Van Fleet argument, I feel as if. I think the band is really good. Yeah. But I, I also think that there's a significant portion of the audience that throws away a significant part of what they do because it's so derivative. I, and I think, honestly, I think that's ridiculous. You know why? You know how hard it is 
to sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. You know how good you have to be yeah. to sound like one of the greatest bands. And you know what? Led Zeppelin ain't putting in any new records. They ain't playing anytime soon. No, I think that shit's ridiculous. Right, that's just my I, thing. And I and I <clears throat> I think that that's true too. But I also think that there's an element of the younger audience that had Greta Van Fleet and come around in a vacuum. They'd be massively successful because no one could listen to the old Led Zeppelin at a drop of a dime. Now you literally just press a button and 15-year-old kids can listen to all of Zeppelin. But they can't go see them live. Nope. And, they new, and, there's, and there's no new records coming out. So I'm all about the bands that fill the gap. But listen, um, I think this is a good place to wrap it. Yeah, let's do um, it. I want to thank you again for being a guest on the show for the second time. Not many people have done that. And you know, making the connections to have this space at Sweetwater to to have us and host us here. It's been a wonderful experience. And like I said, me and you, we could talk all day, but thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Dude, I'm honored to have you in my house and I'm honored to have you running around with my son on your back. That's right. And I'm just honored to be on the show. And I think it's really, really great that we were able to do this. Much appreciated.
That was Intercorrupted by Ra from the album of the same name. What a damn song. That thing is, that song's good. That song's a hit. And uh, Sahaj is, is, I say, some people be singing. He's singing on that one. He hit, he hit all the good notes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Me and me and Sahaj always mix it up. That's that's just how we do it, you know. And those are the people I like to do do shows with. Again, thank you to Streetwater for the third time for allowing us to use your space. It is much appreciated. Yeah, it's a, been a long day over here. Boy's tired. All right, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go take a shower, and I'm gonna watch What If, the Marvel show. Catch the new episode. I heard it's good. I'm watching. I'm rewatching. It's always sunny in Philadelphia from, from the beginning. Season three, gold. Every episode. All right, every episode. I recommend that rewatch. And uh, and we got. So I got a couple emails from people. We have Miguel Santisteven. Sent to Steven. There you go. He goes, what's up, Doc? I'm sure you get these questions all the time, but I was wondering, what are your top five bands, albums, and songs are? All right, sorry. Sorry. Uh, see, these are like, I always feel like these are a little bit red herring because it's like, you got to boil it down to five. I mean, Metallica. Here's, okay, so there's some that's just going to make the list, all right? Metallica's number one. Okay. I'd say Beatles, two. And then after that, gets a little dicey. All right. We got to have Michael Jackson in there. I don't know if he's a band, but artist. I don't know if that counts. We're not counting bands, you know, or we're just talking bands. Megadeth. All right. Uh, Muse. I think, is that my top five already? There's so many. Alice in Chains. In Flames. You know, Seven Dust. I got a lot of favorites, all right. I'm not even I'm not even looking looking at anything right now. All right. Your boy your boy got a lot of favorites, okay? And top five albums, you know, it's probably albums for those bands. <laughs> you know, it's Abbey Road and Master Puppets and the Black Album and you know, one of my favorite albums is uh Back to Black by Amy Winehouse. That's one of my favorites. I really love that um uh, What's that band? Um, Daft Punk. Dead Memories. Where the hell that Something Memories. I love that album. You know, I love some old hip-hop records. You know, The Chronic 2001. That's my favorite hip-hop record. Dr. Dre, you know. You know, sometimes you, you, go, you go through different modes, you know. I was, I was on a Sugar Ray kick for a minute. I was, your boy was just listening to Sugar Ray, you know, smiling. You know, they, they's got... I'm telling you, if you put on some sugar, right, you'd be, you'd be a smiling motherfucker, especially when it's sunny out. I live by the beach. You should be chilling, you know? Um, you know, and I have certain, just certain records, man, that, that stick with you, you know? Slaughter the Soul. I love Glassjaw, their first, you know, two Roadrunner records. Gojira, Alice in Chains. I mean, Alice in Chains, that's like psh, the first Pearl Jam record, first Weezer record. You know, I just love music, man. It's beautiful to go back. You know, actually, hold on. I I fucked up, all right? Top five. Guns N' Roses in my top five, all right? So, so it's Metallica, Beatles, Guns N' Roses. That's the top three. Then you got to put in 
Megadeth and Michael Jackson and Muse somewhere in that order. So maybe if Michael don't count because it's it's not banned, we'll we'll leave it at that. But you know, it's tough. I mean, Alice Chains, Muse. That's that's it's a tough one. This one, but GNR. That's you know that's that's probably yeah it's probably the big the big three. You know, you have to put put that in there. Uh, songs, man, I can't. It's just there's there's certain songs I'm just listening to. You should, you know, I was doing my live yesterday. You know, I had some some jams. I'll just be like going to like, like I love that Montero, Lil Nas. I mentioned Lil Nas in there. That that's that's been one of my jams lately. You know, I'll get on like a pop song kick. Like I love that um, that weekend song. Um, See, save your tears. Save your tears for another day. Boom, doom, doom, doom. I've been I've been I've been wearing that song out. You know, so it's like you know, kind of just just where I'm at. And I've just I've just been wearing out that new Turnstile record, like every day. That's a feel good record too. That's like the record of the year, in my opinion, so far. I mean, there's some there's been some great records this year. Gojira, Architects. Whew, that's a that's a that's a beast of an album. Some good ones. There's been some. You know, this actually been a very good music year. I have to say, it's been a consistent stream. I don't know if you got, like I said, I use that Spotify release radar and I'll just, just let me know. Hey doc, here's this new track. Y'all, y'all been listening to a Donda, the new Kanye. I listened through that. Actually, what I did was I wanted to Spotify like top songs. I was like, let me see what's popping on the top songs. And then Kanye had like, his album was like half the songs. So that's why I was listening to it. And really none of them impressed me except like one song. I was like, you know, felt because you listen to a song, you're like, okay, it's the beat, that's pretty cool. And then you hear a rapper, it was like, that's not Kanye. And then you hear somebody singing, you're like, that's not him. I'm like, I, I need that position where I'm like, I'm the artist, but I don't do shit till <laughs> like the third verse, or I just be on the court. Yeah, Kanye, <laughs> Doc Ye. <laughs> Hip hop, man, they got it good, man. That's what that, you know, maybe that'll be it. I'll just become. A 40-year-old rapper, all right? Auto-tune on everything. You know, but the thing is, you need, like, a crazy... You need need a hook, you know? You need... I mean, everyone's got face tattoos, you know? Maybe I'll get, like, holograms that kind of come out of my face or something crazy, you know? You need you need something, man. I need, like, you know, some surgery where I can have, like, a hammer that goes, like, diagonally through my head or something. You know, because it's, like... If you're trying to get attention, you know, face tattoos isn't enough now. Now it's like, the, so where? what's next? What else can you do? Your eyelids, I mean, that's not, even if you got your eyelids tattooed, you know, you couldn't, or your eyeball, people, you got to get close up to see that, you know? So I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what's next, but people are going to be start doing some crazy shit. I, I, I really don't know. They can start walking around with goats, you know, it's like, yo, I'm, I'm a goat rapper. This is, this is my homeboy. And now we tattooed his face, you know, I don't know. I don't know what people are going to do. They're going to start, you know, willful amputations, you know, just be like an amputee rapper. That's, that's, that's your thing. I don't know. There's not a lot of places to go, um, but they're doing well. So, but yeah, like I, you know, any, you know, there's, there's a good song. I'm, 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 I'm very open-minded, but I don't know a lot of, it's weird with a lot of hot, uh, excuse me, pop and hip hop because trap is such a dominant form that a lot of tough stuff tends to have very similar tonalities to it. So I'm kind of turned off when I hear certain kind of production styles or certain beats. So things have to really stick out. There's like that Olivia Rodrigo song. 
that's kind of like people said like the chorus kind of sounds like um paramore which I, I definitely hear but i actually thought that song actually liked the verses in that in that song i thought it was really cool actually halsey put out a new record the pop artist with um where trent reznor and atticus ross produced it and it is very much in that vein and it's like it's not super hit oriented where i think it's a pop album even though there's some definitely some, some jams in there but it's it's got that feel man she has a really haunting voice and it's it's dark in the ways you want an album like with working with guys like that to be so you know i'm always looking always looking for new for new stuff to jam to so yeah there's a lot you know trivium's got some new songs out I like that one i forget the name of it matt over there sounding like ronnie james deal i'm feeling that shit I'm like all right all right player keep it keep it up keep it up pimping uh who else i don't know all right we got we got another this isn't really a question it's a recommendation from mr dave williamson he goes hey doc i'm an avid listener of the podcast that's what i need i need lots of avid listeners i could be mistaken but i don't believe you ever had james murphy on the show have you i feel like he would be perfect for your format dude's been around the block and i'm sure has some amazing stories to tell anyway thanks for the content it serves me well take care thank you very much dave williamson and if you guys aren't aware of who he's talking about james murphy is a legendary lead guitar player has played with death and obituary and testament and i do know james and i'd love to have him on the show like i, I need to listen there's a lot of like dudes from that scene that i admire a lot that i just haven't done the work to you know so like him gene hoagland i really want to get eric peterson from testament on the show um paul Bostaff, you know a lot of people nick barker drummer i'd love to get on the show so there's a lot of there's definitely a lot of people because i'm you know i'm an old school metal dude and you know it's like it's like lately I, a lot of my guests i've been i've been having people reach out to me so it's like I've, i really even have to, had to work that hard to get guests lately but sometimes i gotta i gotta, gotta put some work in and start kind of cherry picking some some people that I want so all right y'all you boys tired um I always appreciate the support uh, for people listening to the show. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's been a crazy day. It's been a crazy week, but we're going to get through it. You know, the sun will rise. And you know what? I'm out. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.